Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. I'll tell you, this message is important for all business owners. If you don't take care of the legal matters that affect your business, you risk everything that you've worked so hard to build. It happened to me. Years ago, I had a partnership, and I didn't have all my paperwork right, and that guy ripped me up, Corey, for almost a half a million dollars because I didn't plan it ahead of time. Lawyers are expensive. Are you going to pay $300 per hour just to chat with a lawyer? No way. Here's a solution for great legal advice at a reasonable cost. BizCounsel.com. BizCounsel gives you a dedicated business attorney for unlimited advice at hugely discounted fees. If you have complex legal work that needs to be done, BizCounsel will reduce the price for that work by at least 50%. Anytime you have a legal question, anytime you're going to sign a contract, anytime you're going to hire or fire people, you can go to bizcouncil.com. For just $59 per month, you have no excuse for not having an outstanding attorney by your side. Sign up today at bizcouncil and you'll get a free month. Go to bizcouncil.com slash taffer and I'll make sure you get that free month of attorney services. Protect your business. Give yourself some peace of mind. bizcouncil.com slash taffer. That's B-I-Z-C-O-U-N-S-E-L dot com slash taffer. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. All right, here we go. Episode 39 of my No Excuses podcast. It is March 12th, 2019, and I got a great guest this week. J.R. Martinez is here with me. If you don't know J.R., what, who J.R. is or what J.R. looks like, just Google for a second J.R. Martinez when you have a moment, and, and you'll see the image of an amazing hero, somebody very, very special, so I'm excited to have him here this week. Also, got some great audience call-ins, of course. And if you haven't, please hit subscribe at Apple Podcast or go to podcastone.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes automatically every Tuesday. You don't even have to push a freaking button. It just happens automatically. So do that for me. Also, if you want to add comments, likes, or follow, we love that, too. I love to hear from you. And anybody who wants to be on the podcast, and I love it when you guys do because it's the best part, I think, of the podcast is talking to you guys. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com, and Corey will get in touch with you, get you on the show, and we'll see what the heck you have to say. So I want to tell a quick story before we get going here. And, and uh, uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's fun to tell people about my past because so many of you think that, that Bar Rescue is, 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 is really what I do all the time. But sitting here in our offices in Las Vegas and having J.R. Martinez on the show this week made me think a little bit about our military. And uh, I got a story for you. Back in the late 1980s, the U.S. military decided that they were going to take appropriated funds, which were funds provided by Congress to the U.S. military bases for the purpose of officers clubs and enlisted men clubs and activities and what they would say morale, welfare, and recreation activities on basis. And Congress 
changed the law, Corey. I bet you didn't know this. I didn't. And they took appropriated funds away from U.S. military clubs. And what happened then was now if, if a base has, let's say, 15 morale rec- recreation and welfare facilities, and it could be anything from a, a, a daycare center to a golf course to an officer's club, an enlisted band club, a food court, a to-go pizza place, it could be any of those things. If they didn't make money, then the base had to start closing them down. So the U.S. military suddenly was forced to make money out of their bars, their nightclubs, their restaurants, their food courts, and all of those things, and they had never made money before. Then, of course, the employees that worked in all of those facilities were unionized civil service employees who some did a good job, some didn't. But the fact of the matter is it was an institutional environment that just didn't do very well. So nine out of ten soldiers or sailors or Marines would leave base and go eat in town anyway, Corey, right? Because the clubs on base sucked. Right, yeah. When that happened, the U.S. Navy, who was at the time, believe it or not, the largest operator of clubs in the world, they had over 1,200, the U.S. Navy. Wow decided that they wanted to hire an outside consultant to come in, review all of their operations, and teach them how to make money. So they put out a a national RFP, put out all the conditions of the RFP, and five or six companies submitted proposals to get that contract. One of them was mine, Hmm. which was Taffer Dynamics back then. This is a long time ago, guys. This is back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So I submitted my proposal. And the U.S. military, interestingly, Corey, when they evaluate proposals, they look at three things, and they focus on three things only. Price, of course, everybody looks at. Experience. And the third one is the biggie. They call it ability to deliver. That means you're going to come in on budget. You're going to come in on time. You're going to come in with the quality they want. That's a big phrase, ability to deliver. So they tell you that in advance. You go through your proposal process. You work, and this was a serious proposal, Corey. I must have had uh, 20, 30 pages in this thing. And so we submit our proposal to the U.S. military for this major contract to overhaul military, a Navy, and Marines, by the way. For those of you that don't know, the Marines are a division of the U.S. Navy. They're not a service of their own. They are, in fact, a division of the Navy to do this work for the Navy and Marines. We submit our proposal, and we wait a week, another week, another week. About four or five weeks later, we get a phone call that my company got the contract. Are you looking for a place to bet March Madness and enter a million-dollar bracket contest with guaranteed prizes? Well, then go to BetDSI.com to get all your March Madness action in one spot. Use BetDSI's live betting platform where you can watch all the madness via streaming and even bet all the madness games throughout the entire game until the final whistle. And if you're looking to add some excitement to the tournament games, make BetDSI your tournament betting partner. Get one free million-dollar contest entry for just signing up by using promo code TMADNESS. And why choose BetDSI? Well, BetDSI has been paying winners for 20 years. BetDSI is top-rated on betting review sites. Use your sport knowledge to make some extra cash this week. BetDSI has a very user-friendly interface and mobile site, and BetDSI has the fastest payouts in the industry. Simply play, 
win, and get paid. New members get a 100% bonus match using promo code TMADNESS. That's more than double your money to start winning today. Listen, I play there myself and recommend BetDSI. So if you want to add some excitement to the sports you love and any other sports you're watching, go to BetDSI.com and use promo code TMADNESS to get this limited-time 100% bonus offer to make some extra cash betting on the madness this month. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. So now we are required and responsible to evaluate all the Navy and Marines clubs around the world, look at the bases, look at the ships, understand the life of all the military, and put together the manuals, systems, concepts, and procedures that they can implement to make money on their clubs. Because here's the problem. If they don't make money, they're going to close. And if they close, life on base gets worse. Yeah. So this was a really an eye-opening experience for me. I never knew how much the U.S. military cares about the personal lives of their service people. Let me share what I mean. So now I get this contract. I get a Department of Defense ID card, Corey. Oh, that's cool. I can walk on to Navy bases around the country, right? I have the ID, the credentials, yeah. the DOD card. The card that I carried gave me about a colonel's rank in military terms, even though it was a civilian card. So I could stay in officer's quarters. I could go to officer's facilities, be treated like an officer, and generally speaking, have run the base. So I could talk to soldiers and Marines and sailors and, and really ascertain what life on base was like. So that was the work that we were doing. And while I was doing that work, I was given documents called leisure needs surveys. And these were serious documents. I'm, Corey, I'm talking two 300-page documents oh, geez. that analyzed the leisure needs and quality of life requirements and desires for all sailors and Marines. And the amount of time and effort that the U.S. military put into assessing leisure needs and leisure needs surveys completely blew me away. I had no idea that the U.S. military had such a commitment to quality of life, life on base, quality of food and beverage products, quality of entertainment, theaters, daycare centers, family activities, singles activities. Now, at that time... Terrorism wasn't as prevalent as it is now. So bases were a little looser. People could come on and off more freely. So I take the contract, Corey, and I go to military bases all over the world. And I get to go on aircraft carriers. And I get to talk to all the sailors and the Marines. And I get to study all the leisure needs surveys. And I'll never forget it. We wrote a book for the Navy. But at the time, it was, oh, gosh, maybe 600, 800 pages. It was a complete operating manual right. for the Navy. And it was called TNT. Uh, and had a TNT explosive kind of a thing on it. Nice. And it stood for today's nightclub tactics or today's something or other tactics. I'll never forget it. I have one in my office, as a matter of fact, from many years ago. And we got to work with the U.S. military. And I've never served in the military before. So I'm on these bases, Corey. I'm meeting these guys. I'm spending time with them. I'm eating dinner with them in their mess halls. I'm going to the restaurants. I'm going to the theaters. I'm learning about their leisure needs and I start developing concepts and manuals and systems. And I worked with the Navy for a whole, oh, three, four years, maybe five, working on these concepts and all these programs. I'll never forget it. I worked with a gentleman came named Larry Kelly out at Pax River, 
which was out in Maryland, which was where MWR for the Navy was based. And I learned so much about how difficult their lives were and how important fulfilling their needs in leisure times were to having them be productive in non-leisure times. It's a fascinating experience for me. And it was one of those times when I realized, Corey, that if you don't have your leisure life together, your professional life is never going to come together. That's a good point. And it's that way for all of us. So how do we create that balance, man? You know, how do we work hard on base and play when we're not on base, so to speak? Uh, and uh, it's a tough balance. And I got to see that with all of our soldiers and, 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 and all of our sailors. And that was an unbelievable experience for me. We got to create a whole bunch of concepts. We created food court concepts and bar concepts and even nightclub concepts back then, officers club concepts, ethnic restaurant concepts. And it was all to create the perception of national brands and to create environments and concepts that made our sailors, our soldiers, and our Marines feel important. Give them things to do that made them smile and made them feel important. And that was a big responsibility. So that was some of the best work I've ever done in the early stages of my career was for the Navy MWR. MWR, MWR uh, meaning morale, uh, uh, welfare, and recreation. So when I spoke and had the opportunity to get J.R. Martinez on our show, Corey, I went nuts. J.R. is an unbelievable, unbelievable, an incredible hero. J.R., for those of you who don't know, was actually uh, uh, born in El Salvador, moves to the United States, goes to high school in Louisiana, graduates high school, and his entire time, his mother worked and sent money back to El Salvador. So rather than having this sense of entitlement like many of us as Americans have that are born here, He had a great appreciation for the fact that this country gave him and his mother a home. He had a great appreciation for the fact that his mother made enough money to send money back to El Salvador to his family that was starving. He went back to El Salvador a few times and saw what life was like there, and he appreciated America even more. It got to the point that his love for this country was so great and his appreciation so special because he wasn't born here and because he'd go back to El Salvador and see the difference, the stark difference between life and freedoms and pleasures here compared to there. As soon as he got out of high school, Corey joins the Army. Whammo. Goes into basic training. Before he knows it, he's dropped into Kuwait and Iraq. Jeez. He's in a battle. He's in a Humvee. And an IED blows up, and he's with three other guys. They all go. They're blown out of the vehicle. He's stuck in the vehicle. He opens his eyes, and he looks at himself on fire. He watches his hands literally on fire. He then goes to San Antonio, Texas, to the military burn center. He gets over 30 surgeries over three years. His face, his body, burnt to a crisp. Three years trying to struggle to come back. He then does come back, tries to heal his psychological wounds, starts to go through physical rehabilitation, mental rehabilitation, starts to walk again, how to teach himself how to use his hands again, how to use his legs again. I got to tell you, Jr. went through obstacles that none of us can ever begin to imagine. And it was a multi-year, three-year journey, so it wasn't like he had light at the end of the tunnel. It was going to be over in six months. 
So he starts giving some motivational speeches. Goes well for him. He has a powerful message to send to other sailors and soldiers about recovery and keeping the faith and overcoming obstacles and fighting to be to to, to win a battle or fighting to be healthy again. Then suddenly he gets a phone call and he's placed on a soap opera, Corey. <laughs> as a so as as a military I bet person. I didn't see that one coming. And this with, is with his uh, uh, disadvantage of, of looking burnt and scarred. Right. Then he starts to do some movies and stuff. Son of a gun, he's called to do Dancing with the Stars, and he wins. This is a guy who was seconds from death. And it's an incredible story. And, and to sit and talk with J.R. Corey was a powerful experience for me. It brought me back to my years of understanding the difficulty that our soldiers, our sailors, and our Marines go through. Yeah. Even from my view of leisure needs to see that. So talking to JR was not only an honor for me, man, this is one inspirational dude. Uh, when I come back, I'll be with JR Martinez. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or how about the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth is when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they Bump up your value. High mileage, you already know it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you can get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. If you're a bar owner, want to become a bar owner, if you're an operator or a mixologist, you can't afford not to attend a nightclub and bar show. All the new products will be there, thousands of new promotions, the best operators in the world, about 80 educational programs. It's the biggest opportunity of the year to boost your sales or to get into the bar business. And by the way, I'm doing the keynote and opening the show. If you want to go to the Nightclub and Bar Show, check out ncbshow.com. That's ncbshow.com. If you want to be in a bar business or be successful in a bar business, you'll be at the Nightclub and Bar Show. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm so curious about how you became JR, buddy. So <laughs> you were born in Louisiana, right? Yeah. And yes, then, sir. And then your family moved to El Salvador. How old were you when that happened? When you well, moved? well, my family's from El Salvador. Oh, are we, okay. From El Salvador. Yeah, my family's from El Salvador. My mother, my like, is from there. I mean, pretty much my whole family on my mother's side is pretty much still there. Um, but I was born in Louisiana, as you stated, and yeah. then at the age of nine. Uh, we moved to Hope, Arkansas, and then I lived there till I was a junior in high school. And um, it's interesting because I, 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 you know, was catching up with a friend of mine that I went to high school with in Georgia a couple of days ago, and we were just talking about life. and And uh, and he made a comment about um, how I have 
and 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 not to go. I mean, we can go into detail about it if we yeah. want. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, this is your show, but um, but but we were just kind of talking about how I've kind of kind of created a lot of the opportunities that have that have surfaced that have um, presented themselves to me, and um, you know, and moving was challenging. I mean, moving as a young man was was incredibly challenging, but. Um, Kind of to your point about El Salvador, I mean, I had an opportunity to go to El Salvador, I mean, five times before I graduated graduated from high school, and it was it was it was amazing, um, honestly, to to be in El Salvador. Here I was a kid. My father wasn't in the picture. My father left when I was nine months old. It was just my mother and I um, in the states. Yeah, I compared myself to my peers and, and kids at school, and sometimes I'd have to wear the same jeans. You know, yep. I'd wear them on a Monday, and then have to wear them. You know, split it up maybe one, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Monday, Friday, or whatever it was, and just switch out the shirt. And we didn't have a lot. And I remember going to El Salvador, you know, El Salvador, the first time um, at the age of six, and seeing the way my family lives there, yeah. and suddenly. What I and what we in this country, because we're so spoiled and and to some degree feel a sense of entitlement and to some degree we just completely forget how fortunate we are in this country, despite a, a lot of, you know, crazy things that, you know, happen in our country. But it still is the United States of America and everyone still is trying to come here from everywhere in the world. And it, rem- it allowed me to, John, be grateful for what I had. Even though at home, a lot of people would say we were poor and we didn't have a lot, but I was looking at it from a standpoint of, wait a minute, well, we have running water. Yeah. We, you know, we have shelter, we have food, whatever we want. We, I can go to school freely and it's an obligation that I go to school and I don't have so, to work at the age of six. So JR, you're, you're talking about exactly what I was going to ask you about. So <laughs> as a young boy with a family from El Salvador, when you got out of high school, you went right into the army. Yes, sir. Did, did growing up with the exposure to, to culture and life in El Salvador is comparison to because you're a warrior for this country. You're, you're yeah. one of our greatest warriors and you're almost more inspired than I'm guessing the one who hadn't been exposed to life in El Salvador. So it did make you appreciate where you were more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it actually was contributed to one of the reasons why I joined the military. I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened, and like so many, you know, Americans yeah. and, and people around the world witnessed on that day the attacks on, 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 our, on our country. Um, I was in high school in Georgia, in Dalton, Georgia, small town, carpet sure. capital of the world, man. And um, right. here I was. The big mills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so here I am, a senior in high school, witnessing on television and when that opportunity, so I graduated from high school, my thought process was I was going to go to college and play, you know, college football. And yeah. it didn't quite work out that way because academics, you know, academics, yeah. I was the kid that was an athlete and everyone's friend and a class clown and didn't necessarily focus on academics and it caught up to me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you can relate to this. I mean, I mean, I, I had this vision in my mind. This is the way my life is going to work out because these are the examples I see on television, yeah. not necessarily examples around me because I didn't really have that many, but this is what I see on television. And when it didn't happen that way, I suddenly was like, well, I'll crumble up the little piece of paper I wrote my goals and plans on and I'll just throw it away because now what am I going to do with my life? 
And one day the military um, presented itself as an opportunity and it kind of been something that we had discussed a little bit in school. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go check it out. And I went and got some information. And so I decided to join because I was 19 years old and I felt that that this a country that I was extremely grateful for, a country that had given my mother an opportunity and then therefore had given me an opportunity was attacked. The way I looked at it, my mother being able to be in this country and work in this country, earn money, was not only able to take care of me, but then with that income, she was able to send money to my grandmother, my aunts and uncles in El Salvador and feed them off of the little bit she made. And so I took that and it wasn't just a threat to me directly. It was now a threat to my whole family. Mm. So there was something a little bit more deeper for me in comparison to, you know, the next person in basic training and the line. You know, mm. I had a deeper connection to, to some degree because yeah. some people have obviously military families and traditions yeah. and some people yeah. feel that passionate as well. Of course, 9-11 will make anybody feel that passionate. But um, it definitely sense, did deal my a, fire. You, yeah, you had less of a sense of entitlement. Right, I did. And a greater and, sense of obligation. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and so what, but, but, you know, here I was still 19 years old and to some degree, very naive and, uh, very, uh, you know, I I tell people I raised my right hand, like so many service members understanding that war was a possibility, especially during that time. But I never thought it would be my reality. Interestingly enough, Mm. when you think about that, like, how do you, how do you join during a time of war, understanding that you could go to war, but yet not truly ever, think that you're going to go to war it won't happen to you i'm 19 i mean nothing's gonna happen to me like and that it would become such such a lasting part of your life because you still live it every day in a sense absolutely i do it's the center of your life and the work that you do and you know what's amazing uh, uh to me about you jr is that you know when you went into the military you were a man of purpose you had a purpose for your life you had a purpose for our country you had an obligation Yes, sir. And I want to talk about what happened to you in the Army in a minute. But you're still a big man of purpose and obligation. Those are big words to you, aren't they? Yes, sir, they are. Yeah. I mean, when people ask me, I have a a, a young, you know, she's going to be um, seven-year-old daughter. And when people ask, ask me the question of, you know, what do I want her to take away? And obviously, there's a lot of things. It's not just one thing, you know. But um, I want her to, you know, to, to. to embody service. I want her to remember her father as someone who served till the day that until that day comes. And I want her to say that he lived with purpose every single day. And he may not, not have known exactly what the direction he was going in, but he had a purpose of going down a path, a direction to find that next thing, because that's what, the way he lived his life. And that's ultimately what has led me to this moment of being here with you. You know what I mean? Um, I'd add a word honor in there too, somewhere. Uh, JR yes, as well, absolutely. not just yes, purpose. Sir. Okay, so you get so you're in the army, right? You, you go to training in, in uh, uh, Fort Benning, right? Yes, sir. And then you deployed, right I, from right from training. Yeah, well, I went. I mean, it feels that way. I mean, I got to. I joined in September of 2002. By the way, I got uh, in. Can I interrupt for a second? You sure. and I have two things in common that are very powerful things in our lives. What's My that? dad died when I was two. Oh, wow. so, so I also lost my father in a different way than you did. But I also had a sister who passed at birth. Oh, wow. 
And you and I both share those two things. And, and, and certainly, you know, losing our father at a young age, a very powerful part of who we are today. Absolutely. But I just wanted to share that with you. I'm sorry to interrupt your story, but I want no, to, no, I want to no. share that with you. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that don't make sense in the moment, you know, and, you know, you, you, you have to stick with it. You have to stick with it because you have to trust and believe that the answer eventually comes over the course of time. And in many ways, it comes when you're not really seeking the answer, where you're not really, you know, paying attention to some degree. You're just kind of outliving your life. Um, it, it'll present itself. And, and you know, to touch on my sister, you know, here's, here's you know, I have two sisters. I still t- tell people I have two sisters. Um, you know, she was the middle child, um, three years older than I am. And well, I still I still speak in a sense of like she's here with me. But what's interesting, John, is I never met her is that I never met her because she was born in El Salvador. I never met her. I was three years old when she passed away from an illness that she was born with. So she was six. Mm. She passed away. Never met, met her. I'm sure I spoke to her on the phone at some point. But I remember going to El Salvador when I was nine years old and my mother taking me to her gravesite. And for some odd reason, I was overwhelmed with this emotion. And I, I, I was just, I was crying and crying as if I had lost my best friend. It didn't make sense to me nor to the family. We come back home and I still with this curiosity. Mm-hmm. Fast forward ni- to 19 years old, 10 years later, I'm in the Humvee. I'm literally burning alive. Mm-hmm. I'm having all of these images and thoughts in my mind that I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My life is going to end in this way. All the things I wanted to do, I'll never get to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, and also in between, I'm, I'm screaming and yelling. Also in between, I'm gasping for air because I, had, I was inhaling the smoke from the fire, which is doing a lot of damage. And my sister appears to me. My sister appears to me and she tells me I'm going to be okay. Now, did she appear to you as a six-year-old? Did she appear to she you? She appeared to me in the only photo that I've ever seen her in that my mother has. And that's it. That's way. the only right. photo I've ever seen of her. And, and I mean, wow. a, a tenth of a second later, it felt like I was pulled out of that Humvee. And so I always tell people, it's like, I believe that my sister is my guardian angel. I believe that she's looking after me. She's looking after my, my other sister and my mother. I believe she's taking care of us. And so, you know, that was something that, in a lot of ways, I mean, not having a father as well, I mean, that was that was incredibly, you know, difficult because, of course, you know. But it toughed you up too, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I'm finally in a place at the age of 35 years old. I'm finally in a place where I'm starting to somewhat fully kind of create my identity and understand my identity. You know, here I was as a young man with the key or the you as well with the crucial component of, of, of your childhood not being present your father. I grew up as a, as a teenager wanting to find out who he is, wanting to meet him, wanting to know this, wanting to have this family around me that I knew I had. I just couldn't, I didn't have access to him as frequently. Um, wanting all of that, wanting its purpose. I needed a purpose. I wanted, I, I, I strive for that. So here I am now suddenly in the military and I'm getting a taste of that family. You know, you, right. you, you right hear about family. that bond yep. within the military. I had purpose, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I was starting to create an identity for myself, and then it was taken away from me. But you also, I'm guessing, in betting, also built confidence. 
Oh my God. I was physical confidence, mental confidence, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was, so tell tell me, tell me the story. Uh, when, when, when you got deployed, tell me the story. How long were you there? And, Oh, oh, I want to know the story, and, and I also want to learn about what you felt a little bit, Jr. Because you've overcome fear that people like I can't even conceive, and you've walked out the other side of it, and, and that's really powerful to me. When you first were deployed, were you scared? I was terrified. And I'm terrified. And when you touched down, where did you touch down? Where did you talk to me about your first battle and the way you felt? So we, 19 years old still. Yeah. Um, I had just arrived at Fort Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is outside of Nashville, Tennessee. That's where I was stationed after basic training. And I was there maybe two months. And I, and I was on a plane heading over to the Middle East, going to war. Now, before I left, before I got on the bus to go to the airfield to then deploy, the last words to my mother because our family and friends were able to be there at that moment. The last words to my mother as she was overwhelmed with emotion and crying, I hugged her and I said, don't cry. They can't stop me one way or, I'm co- one way or another. I'm coming back home, right? But that was a, that was a cover-up. That was me trying to be strong for my mother, yeah. but I was completely terrified. We get on a plane, and oddly enough, man, if you've never seen this movie, you should watch it at some point yeah. if you have some downtime. We were soldiers. And this Mel Gibson film about war and they're playing it. And I think psychologically, they're just trying to prepare us. And I'm watching this film and I'm freaking out. Like, I'm like, wow, that's war. We land in Kuwait. And because, of course, we hadn't invaded yet. So we land in Kuwait because I got there about three, two and a half weeks before the war started in March of 2003. Mm -hmm. So we land in Kuwait. I'm looking at this. I mean, we're on a bus. We're going to the desert. I, I mean... And it just, it just, I've never seen the desert before. So that was a brand new experience to me. Um, seeing people miles away in the middle of the desert just walking, that wasn't as foreign to me because interestingly enough, in El Salvador, there would be, I mean, there, there's no desert, but there's trees and forest and, and fields and, and, and people would just be walking, you know, that's how they commuted. Or, and, and so I just remember one day asking my sergeant, like, <laughs> like what's going on? Like, what, like, what, what are we doing? What, like, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? And, and, and them just trying to talk to me, talk me through the whole process. But I, I I mean, I remember going in when we finally invaded, going into Iraq and going and patrolling to different towns and going into these, I mean, you see the look in some people's eyes and, and, and it, I mean, it, it terrifies the hell out of you because you, you, you're not sure. You don't know who to trust. And it's, you, it's, do, it, do it wasn't like the wild, wild west where, you know, like, okay, you're standing in front of me and I know you're the enemy and you know I'm the enemy. It wasn't like that. I mean, you had people coming from every angle and you never, mm-hmm. know, you never knew who to trust. So w- did you ever look at uh, 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 another recruit or another uh, uh, one of, you, of your uh, uh, soldiers and said, I'm scared? Or was that just a word that was never said to each other? No, that was a word you you, you never spoke. You, right. you never said that word. But um, you knew he felt it when he was standing next to you because you did. Yeah, yeah. So it was an there, unspoken there was, fear. Yeah, there was no there was no room for that. There was no room for because that moment of you um, embracing that emotion would potentially cost your life or yep. potentially cost someone else's life. So you there just was don't no go time there. for that. You yeah. just don't go there. Okay, tell me the story, but I want to hear. So now you're there. You hit ground. 
and and, and uh, uh, literally, I hit. <laughs> yeah, literally hit ground because because you were airborne, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was air, I was air assault, like air, airborne air assault, but I never got that training because it all happened so fast. I mean, I got to my unit and we deployed right away, so I never went through the full extent of training wow. like so many service members did. Um, so you know, I was, I mean. You could have literally just just sent put me on a plane straight from basic training because that's essentially what happened. Wow! Um, and dropped yeah, in a war we zone. Get, we, get, we get there, and and early on, our jobs um, was 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 very simple: was to patrol through the southern parts of of Iraq, providing security for different jobs in the military. So, for example, like we had to. You know, you had someone that was in a medical field or transportation or supplies, and they would. We were one of the units that would come up to and say, "Help us get from point A to point B safely." And so that's what we did. We essentially were a caravan of individuals helping get getting them to their destination. But why us? Well, because I was infantry. We were infantrymen, and infantry are individuals that are trained to fight. That's their right. specialty. Yep. So front line. we did the lay of the land as well. Front and line, so right? Yeah, and that's what we did. And now. We suddenly we got into that space of, of where there was after a couple of missions of escorting people to their destination. I remember one night reflecting on the mission we had earlier that earlier that day, and it was a, it was a it was a convoy of like forty or fifty uh, Humvees and and or different vehicles. And I remember thinking to myself, here I am, a private in in the United States Army, a private in the United States Army, which as you know is essentially a paid intern like yep. it's entry yep. level it's low ranking yep. you have no voice you have no opinion and i remember thinking to myself john i am a private in the united states army but my superiors have led me and have spoken to me in a way where they've led me to believe that what i do is important to completing the mission that if i don't do my job as a private my basic responsibilities we don't complete the mission every person matters so you had and a good leader. Myself, you had a good leader. You had a good leader. Absolutely. That's great leadership. That's yep. fantastic yep. leadership because he, he made everybody feel like Valued. they belonged and they mattered and they were important and integral part of completing the mission. Yep. And so here I am now. Here I am now. I'm like, well, I don't know who those people are that we just helped to get from point A to point B safely. But what I'm led to believe that that those people are going to go help somebody else. And I was a part, a very small part. But I was a part of the process of helping them get there. Suddenly, I had purpose. Yeah. Suddenly, I've, I understood service. And suddenly, what I thought was going to be three years, I thought, well, maybe why not 20? And so I was starting to now have this mindset of, I want to be the best at all I can be, you know, like that old army slogan. And, 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 and I wanted to come back from my deployment and I wanted to go to aerosol school and airborne school and pathfinder school and ranger school and special forces. And I wanted to be that GI Joe highly decorated on my uniform. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. And then it changed on the 5th of April of 2003. Tell me as we're here, we are approaching that date. It, it all changed when, We'll be right back with J.R. Martinez. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. March Madness is upon us, and it's time to place your bets. All right, let's get to it. Join R.J. Bell on R.J. Bell's Dream Preview as he helps you fill out your bracket with his expert betting advice. Some smaller conference action Friday night. 
VCU playing a team that should be able to, to make it to the NCAA tournament. Get the winning advantage and dominate the brackets by downloading RJ Bell's Dream Preview every week on Podcast One. Boy, there's nothing more important than your employees in a small business. That's why when it's time to make a hire for your small business, naturally you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. And LinkedIn Job uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make quality hires you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash Taffer. And then it changed on the 5th of April of 2003. Tell me As we're, here we are approaching that date. It, it all changed when we got a, our mission was to escort a convoy north of the city of Karbala. And uh, so we, we proceed, we, we drive and, you know, we, we start, we get to the Karbala safely and we think mission complete time to turn around and come back, wait for our next mission, which is going to be the next day more than likely. And as we're starting to turn around, we were, were rerouted because we had to meet up with a group of guys just north of the city of Karbala to go secure this area, a new mission. And as we're rerouted, I'm the driver, there's a, there's a passenger, there's a gentleman sitting behind him, and there, in the Humvee, there's a weapon mounted up top, and there's a gunner. So there's four of us. And I start, I, I'm driving on this new route that we were told to go down, and then suddenly, boom, it happens. And what happened was the front left tire of the Humvee that I was driving ran over a roadside bomb. Immediately, the other three soldiers were thrown out of the vehicle, yet I was trapped inside. Wow. And it, within a matter of seconds, caught on fire. And here I am now, from my memory, because I was completely conscious the whole time that I was trapped inside of that Humvee, which they later told me was five minutes. Jeez. I'm seeing my hands literally burn. I'm watching the skin on my hands melt away. I am gasping for air, trying to get oxygen because I had broken ribs, lacerated liver. So in the mix of me trying to get oxygen, I was inhaling the smoke from the fire. Sure. Then at the same time in my mind, mentally, I kept screaming and yelling. And mentally, I'm thinking to myself, I'm screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs. Why aren't these guys who are my brothers? Why aren't they coming to get me? Because to me, of course, five minutes or a minute feels a like time. 10 minutes. Yep. It feels like an hour. Why, why aren't they coming to pull me out of this Humvee? And I remember that in this vicious cycle of <gasps> gasping for air and help, help, screaming and yelling. I remember that I would have these moments of where I would just, I would stop and I would close my eyes. And it felt so good to just let go. And I remember thinking to myself, I literally thought this. I can't close my eyes because if I do, that's it. I've given up because my body's going to shut down. 
So do you and think- I would psychologically have to trick my myself into believing that no, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. Just open your eyes. And that was literally the battle for those five minutes. It was with myself yeah. of keeping my eyes open, staying awake, staying alive, keep fighting. That's what the battle was with. That's who the battle was with. So do you think that a lot of people in that horrific moment let go? Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably one of the most defining moments of your life. That's a millisecond, wasn't it? Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And it was easy. It was easy. And it felt good. It felt uh, it felt um, uh, relieving to just let go in that yeah, moment. Almost natural. It, it was absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, the alternative to, to this pain and this excruciating pain that I'm feeling is to just let go and just kind of be at peace. Yeah. Well, hell, I'll choose that any day. Right. But the long-term effect of that, is that I'm not here. I don't have the life that I have today. I don't have the opportunity to do the things that I've done. So, but why, why did, in that moment, I wasn't thinking this. I wasn't thinking, okay, you know, why is it ingrained in me? So JR, if, because you had such great leadership and that you had such purpose and such a sense of value to your mission, in a way, didn't that leadership add to your sense of value, which added to your motivation to say, I have a purpose to live? 100%. Isn't that interesting? How, it is how- absolutely. I mean, 100%. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about leadership, you know, you know, a lot of people have a, a, a misconception of what leadership really looks like. And, 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 and it's literally just taking every single one of your troops, no matter who they are, no matter where, they, where they're ranked, and say, hey, this is your job, this is your job, and this is your job. And if the three of us or the four of us or 500 of us do every single one of our jobs, guess what? You now get that individual to get a, a, an understanding that they bring value, that there's, yep. they're an asset to this company, to this mission, to this movement, and then they do more for you. Right. Like they they buy in. They, they'll they work the long hours. They might not complain as much. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it's and, and so I had I had tremendous leadership that allowed me to 100 percent buy in. So it's so now you're in the vehicle. You're, you're going through unthinkable, horrific moments. Was there a moment where you felt somebody grab you or was there a moment where, where you talk to us about that? Yeah. So here I am replaying this, you know, this 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 thought process of what's going to happen to me, what's happening, what's happening to me. And then suddenly that image of my sister appears. And then as I stated, it felt like it wasn't even a, a second after where two, where I, I, well, I don't, I don't remember how many hands. I just remember feeling a set of hands, a, a pair of hands grabbing me and pulling me. And I don't remember anything beyond that. I mean, what I, what I do as far as who pulled me out, I didn't, I, I wasn't able to process that until later they filled that, those blanks in for me. But what immediately after when I was pulled out, because I later learned the two guys, because the Humvee was on fire, they just grabbed me and pulled me out. There, there wasn't a let's kind of fiddle around in here, make sure right. we know, just grab and get them out. Just let them land, land, like pull them onto the, onto the sand and then we'll get to them here. And, yeah. and, and so um, I remember laying on the sand like, on my back and I was I, I felt this excruciating pain coming over my face and. I started screaming about my face, my face, my face. And of course, as you can see, mm-hmm. you know, my face was, burned. was, was burned, you know, pretty badly. And, and, and I felt the pain. And, uh, and then from there I was medevaced and I was taken to a local medic station set up in Iraq where at that moment they put me into a medical induced coma. Um, a mass unit in essence. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah. sir. And then, um, once they put me into the medical induced coma, they put me on a plane 
and flew me to Longstuhl, Germany, which is a hospital for the military. And a lot of service members go there before they come back home. And um, I was still in this coma. I went into emergency surgery when I arrived there. And, um, you know, they cut my stomach open because I had the biggest thing at that time that was threatening whether I was going to survive or not was not necessarily the external wounds, was all the internal wounds, was all the smoke that I inhaled, everything internally. So they cut my stomach open, and the way the doctor explained it to me later, we just cleaned you up. Um, they cleaned me up, put stitched me back up, and then after three days, they put me on a plane, plane and brought me back to the United States, and I went to the burn center for the military, which is in San Antonio, Texas. And that's when, um, as I tell people, that's when, um, honestly, the real, the real um, war began. Um, and unfortunately, I found that I was going to be fighting it by myself, and I didn't have a group of guys, my unit next to me. It's all about you. Yeah. So, so I've been at that facility, and and that's an amazing facility. Yeah, it uh, is. Uh, uh, it's the heart of so much military research and and, and development. So, how long were you there? I was there almost three years. Wow. Almost yeah. three years recovering. So I turned twenty, twenty one, twenty two at that facility. Um, coming out of that medical induced coma three weeks later. So you were in a coma three weeks. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. But coming out of that coma um, and learning about in a very short time thereafter, learning about my reality, meaning my appearance, that it wasn't necessarily what I'd known before. And the fact that I was no longer going to be able to remain in the United States Army. Wow. So Your suddenly, within a couple of weeks after me coming out of a coma, both of my identities have been taken away from me. You lost everything. I lost everything. And here I was having this relationship with an individual in the mirror that I didn't know, that, that I never had any interaction with. And then I'm trying to recapture the old individual that I used to see in that mirror, but they're telling me he's dead. So now I, ha- I have to now deal with the grief. I have to grieve the loss of that individual and start to, you're telling me now, this is the person I'm married to for the rest of my life? Who the hell is that? Nothing and then you're telling me I can't stay in the army. You're telling me I can't be of service. You're telling me I don't have a purpose. And you're telling me you're going to throw me in this society that we live in that is incredibly judgmental and cruel at times with this, with what tools, with what resources? Man, I went, I went from I – I, I wouldn't say that I was on a high. I was here. But after all of that, suddenly I just crashed all the way down. I was angry. I was resentful. I was – I mean I was pissed at everybody that walked into my room. I was a victim in every sense of the word. Yeah, and you were angry about it. Yeah, absolutely. I was incredibly angry because yeah. I just thought, you know, what, this is what I kept saying to my mother. What have I done to deserve this? I'm not a bad person. <laughs> For those who are just listening, uh, uh, they should know that JR is on a screen in front of me. We're yeah. On, we're on <laughs> Skype together. And I have you on a big screen so you're life size. You are oh, really nice. almost as if you're sitting right across from me. I want not, you to know. Not, not, not my waist side, though. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. So I'm looking at your shoulders. My waist side, I'm trying to slim it up a little bit. But there's something, me too. There's something I want to do to say to you, though. When I sit here and, yep, your face is burned. When I sit here and talk to you and look in your eyes, buddy, there's nothing else that you see. You're about as handsome a guy and as good a guy as yeah, I've ever thank seen. You, man. Everything disappears, bro. Your eyes yeah. and your heart just takes over. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I've, I've learned that over the course of time, you know, over, over the last 16 years, I've, I've, I really have, have, have come to understand and learn about what beauty is. And it it's not necessarily it what's on the surface, yeah. you know, 
No one ever came to me as a kid and said, hey, you have an amazing personality. You know, you have a beautiful personality. You're you're, you're a handsome personality. They always said, you're handsome. Um, You're attractive. That was it. And so when that element was taken away from me, was removed, I suddenly felt I had nothing else. I felt like there was no reason for anyone to ever talk to me or want to have any sort of interaction with me whatsoever. But even, and it was hard and it was challenging. And I'll tell you, John, and I think it's important if, you know, I I, I think it's incredibly generous and I thank you for uh, allowing me to to speak on your platform, to reach, you know, your audience, because I know you have a, a big audience, but I think it's important for people to understand that yes, the recovery for me was incredibly difficult and it was challenging to physically get back to a place of learning how to walk again, feed myself, bathe myself, go to the restroom, you name it. I learned how to dress myself all over again. I had to learn how to get range of motion in my hands, range of motion and everything on top of every single skin graft and yep. cosmetic surgery I had to have. How many just surgeries? 30, 30 some odd surgeries, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, but what was in when when what what I didn't address in those three years were were the wounds that I had internally in a sense of mentally and emotionally. Well, I was just going to ask you about that. I didn't I didn't address those wounds because that 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 took a backseat to all this that everyone else can see and what I can see, and so I didn't deal with that. Well, one because I didn't know I had to, and two to so, some degree in a short amount of time I was trained not to deal with it. So in your therapy process, you went through all sorts of physical sur- but they really didn't provide you with the psychological programs. No. It wasn't part of your agenda in therapy. I mean, there would be snippets, you know, with yeah. staff members, whether it's my occupational therapist or a doctor or an anesthesiologist or just friends that I developed at the hospital that would just say, you know, hey, it's going to get better. You know, yeah. just kind of short snippets of it that would kind of give me a little hope and kind of carry me for a while. Yeah. But really digging down deep and in, in addressing it, there was none of that um, until we got out of the army. I want to talk about this. For, I want to talk about this for just a second because this is really yeah. powerful. I have a lot of friends, and I've tried to provide whatever support I can to PTSD and working with other people who who are spokespeople and and faces and voices of it. Mm-hmm. And they all say the same thing: that talking about weakness is just not permitted. So because of that, you know, you hide your pain, your mental pain, right? Right. You can talk about your physical pain, but you hide that mental pain. You act tough so we never address those injuries for our soldiers and sailors and Marines. Yeah. And that's a powerful thing. So now you're physically getting better. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to make that point because it's a big point. But you're absolutely right, John. You know, and, and in many ways, to be honest with you, Physi- I probably would have tried to hide the physical wounds and that physical pain that I was enduring, but I couldn't because right. you could see it just looking at me. Right. So there was no way it was inevitable. Yep. But the other wounds, I can keep that from you and I can yeah. keep that from anybody else. I, I, I got to share this quick story. And, and, and you're right. It is a part of our kind of our makeup as human beings. But I had this experience the other night where I was leaving the supermarket and it was probably around eight o'clock at night. My wife asked me to run out and grab some stuff. And I went out and I grabbed some stuff and I was putting stuff in the car. And I noticed that the, the, that there was a police officer, a, a patrol car parked behind me. And the police officer was actually standing outside of his vehicle with his knees, with his hands on his knees, hunched over. So I watched him. I wasn't sure what was going on. I watched him for a second. Um, well, then he ended up falling to a knee and I walked over. I said, are you okay? And he says, oh, I just feel a little lightheaded. I feel a little nauseous. He's like, I just need to take a seat. So he sits down. 
Another gentleman comes over. The both of us are like, hey, do you want us to call somebody? He says, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, guys. And the other gentleman says to him, he says, well, what would you do if that were us? And then the police officer guy has a little smirk and he's like, all right. So he, he calls. He says, all right, let me get my phone. And he tells the EMS per, and the firefighters to come. But don't, he said, don't, don't. And I forget the term but, that he used, but he said, don't, don't run color. Don't, you know, meaning no sirens and lights and all that stuff. Right. And so he gets off the phone. They're on their way. And the other gentleman and I said, hey, we're going to stay here with you until they come. And he, the whole time he says, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry to inconvenience you. I'm sorry you have to do that. I'm sorry. Here's an individual that is trained to protect, to assist, to serve. And yet now, when he is now in that position where he needs protection, he needs assistance, and someone's trying to serve him, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Until we had to, like, force it. And I just thought, I mean, they came and they treated him and it turned out he's okay. Everything was fine. But it was just so fascinating to me. See that dynamic. That's something you see not only in law enforcement, not only in our military, but you see it in any profession and yeah. any human cultural society. That's just who we are. And that's unfortunately why there have been a lot of people that have fallen to suicide, that have become victims to that, that have decided to go that route because we as a society, as a nation, don't empower people to actually speak up. And when they do speak up, if they're not saying what we like, then we we t- turn away from it. The hell with that, man. Yep. Life is too short. We all have to be embracing of one another and actually empower people to speak up and get it out because and you, and you, we're not going to get anything. We're just going to lose more people. I agree with you. And you know what's amazing? When people say to us, help me, we love that. We want yes. to help each other. Yes. So we welcome the opportunity to help yes. each other. It's just that we don't speak up when we need it. Yeah. Yet, the humanity of us is to to want to help each other if we know yeah. it's needed. So Absolutely. It's not for a lack of desire to help. It's a lack of asking. And I'm with Absolutely. you 100%. It's a, la- it's a lack of knowledge of knowing that, one, someone needs assistance. And two, oh, wait, I can assist you? Yeah. I can actually do something for you? Because too many of us are walking around thinking that we have no value. Yeah. We have no purpose. We bring nothing to the table. But at that moment, yet, you do. In my particular case, what I learned well, wait a minute, just like simply by sharing my story, simply by talking to other veterans, simply by being involved with a nonprofit, becoming a spokesman, wait, suddenly I started realizing my story is able to impact people, not who walked in similar shoes as me, but everybody. Yeah. And simply that is where I learned I bring value to the table. Yeah, boy, do you. So now you get past the nightmare of healing, right? Getting yourself to a point that you can now be self-sufficient. I'm going to say you not only got your physical ability back, your pride came back, right? You had purpose again, objective. Yes, sir. You became a really successful, sought-after speaker. I know why now after spending this time with you. But I got to talk about television because now you wind up in 2008. You wind up on All My Children. Then you wind up in the season finale of Army Wives. And now another part. So so you actually have a whole new career in show business. How did that happen, JR? Was it something you thought of or was it a phone call? Literally, this is how it happened. So all my children was launching a casting call, trying to find a veteran to play this character on the show. And they thought, what are the odds of us finding a real-life veteran with some acting experience? So they said, let's just try it. Let's just send out a huge casting call. My best friend gets the email, forwards it to me, calls me, says, look at that email. Immediately call me back. I call him back. I say, you're crazy. I'm not an actor. I'm not – I haven't trained in that. He says, man, you're perfect. You could do this. I – 
So I, I answer the casting call. I meet with the executive producer and the casting director. And they tell me, all right, we want you to come back in in one month. We're going to want you to come back and we want to put you on camera Testing. and put you in a scene. I said, okay. I come back. I learn my lines. I get on camera with, with Beth Ellers, who yeah. was my love interest at the time. And uh, I was done with the scene. They said, all right, cool. We'll keep you posted. A week later, they called me and said, you got the part. And I was ecstatic about it. I was like, are you, are you sure? And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, how long am I going to be on the show? They said three months. And I three months. I quickly had to move to New York City. I quickly had to start. And you know what? Here's the thing, John, which I think maybe you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate. Here I found myself in New York City on this, on this set that I didn't really have any business belonging on. Yeah. Right? I, didn't, yeah. I didn't belong on that set. I didn't train my whole life for this opportunity. The opportunity just presented itself, and here I was. And there were plenty of moments where I got into my head of thinking to myself, I don't belong here. I'm not trained like the rest of these individuals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I would always say to myself, you know, I'd remind myself, you know what? It's going to be three months, and that's it. I'm, I got to show up, and I, and I can't half-ass this. And I'm going to make this the best damn three months possible. And so what I would do is – Purpose. When, when I exactly, and when I didn't have, when I wasn't on set, and when I wasn't in a scene, I would remain on set and watch all of the other actors and see what they would do in their scene. And I started to kind of learn from them, just hands-on learning. I applied it to my scenes, and what was supposed to be three months turned into three years. <laughs> me being on that show, you know, it's funny. Well, we because I took was that we, you and I share that late in life. A friend came up to me, said you should be on television. So I submitted it, and, and and I thought I'd do a pilot and go home, Jr. Nine yeah. years later, I'm still on TV. So it's it's amazing. You seize the moment, though. Yeah. You see, you weren't starstruck. You saw a craft, a purpose. And what you do is a craft. I'm sure you agree. And you got better and better and better at it, and you watched and you learned. But that's what you did in the Army. That's yeah, what yes, you sir. did. That's what you did when you when you took that step in high school to go into. So it doesn't surprise me that that that, that works. It surprised the hell out of me because yeah. I hadn't put it all together yet. <laughs> you're an animated guy, so it makes perfect sense to me. You are. Yeah. You know, you're an energetic and animated. And it, you know, it bursts through the screen. So unbelievable. So now you're doing that. So now, do you have an agent? I do now, yes. So, 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 and now I do. I just think this is wonderful, buddy. So so you've got an agent, a whole new career, but at the same time, so at the same time, you're still doing your serious work. You're doing your speeches. Yes, sir. You know, you're the face of the Army and you're face of so many veterans who need a voice, and you are that voice. Yes, you're sir. also their motivation. You're their inspiration. So you never lose sight of your big purpose, even no. while you're doing your TV and your other work, do you? Listen, I had, I, you know, this is something that my best friend who has known me for, uh, how long has it been now? It's 15 years. So he met me a year after I was injured. And, uh, and, and, and this is not me trying to pat myself and, and gloat and everything, but he said, you know, that's the one thing that has amazed me about you, JR, is in the mix of all of the success that, that, you, that you've achieved, I have, you haven't changed. Yeah. Because this, the, the, at the core, I remember why all my children presented itself. I remember why Dance with the Stars, why all these other opportunities that presented themselves. Why? Because I was, I, I was an advocate. I was a spokesman. I was, I, was a, I was an advocate for life, advocate for veterans, advocate for people. Like but that's not pocket work was important to me. That was my purpose. And so for me, despite all of this success, 
Now I use that success to hopefully push the campaign furthermore to hopefully help more people. And everything that, feeds- that all started for me. So why would I abandon that? Yeah. Now I'll never abandon that. That is such a crucial part of my life because I understand that there's too many people, unfortunately, that fall through the cracks and feel like they don't see that little bit of light that I saw early on in my recovery that allowed me to get to where I am today. Yep. Okay, you're going to laugh at this question, but i got to ask you this question. So I'm picturing you as a 19-year-old boy, Jerry, and you're being dropped on a battlefield, and you're terrified, and I'm, I'm picturing all these unbelievably wild emotions. And then I'm picturing you years later being dropped on a stage of Dancing with the Stars, and i got to ask you, with which was scarier? <laughs> with, with rhinestones yes. and, and, and two-inch Latin hills. So, yeah, man. Which was scarier? <laughs> Let me tell you what, <laughs> dancing was scarier because I knew that if I didn't do well, all those guys from the military oh, would never let me hear, never let me live it down, never let me live it down. So for me, it was like, I have to do my best. I have to kick ass. But it's wow. funny because here I was, when I got asked to go on dancing, I wasn't, I really wasn't intimidated to the point where Karina Smirnoff, who was my yeah. partner, yeah. told the story during our season. And she said that the week, week one, our routine started where we're facing each other. We're away from one another, facing each other, maybe maybe five feet between us. And they're introducing, they're saying, dancing, the Viennese Waltz, J.R. Martinez and Karina Smirnoff. And while they're doing that, Karina looks at me and she says, and she says, she said, you ready? She kind of like, you know, mumbles it to me. I looked at her and I just, I winked by and I said, I got this. <laughs> and she said, in that moment, she realized, okay, when the lights come on, when 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 the when the music begins, that's when he shows up. He is ready for this moment. My whole life prepared me for that very moment. And I think that we too often overlook our whole experience as human beings and understand that there even if it was negative, there's something of value that comes out of that experience that is preparing us for the next thing. Here I was, just like you, we talked about a lot of adversity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to go back into it all. All of that, because I survived all of that, that prepared me for this big stage to think, you know what? This is easy. I got this. You have a depth that you wouldn't have had if you didn't go through the life experience. As horrific as it was. Yeah. I think it's a body armor that you wear now. I think it's a wisdom. It's a knowledge of overcoming things. You know, I wrote a book about excuses and people using excuses, and I tried to break down the six biggest fear, uh, biggest excuses in life. And fear uh, is a big one, buddy. Fear yes. is a big one. Time is a big one. You knew it would take years to recover, but you stayed with it. Mm-hmm. You know, at times you were terrified, but you still stepped in. You showed up every day. You yes, sir. In, you made it happen. You've put aside fear. You've put aside every excuse that there could possibly be. And you had real excuses, not BS excuses. Yours are legit. (laughs) And anybody who's listening to this podcast today, if they think that there's an excuse in their life that they can justify that's holding them back from their healing, their recovery, being dropped on a stage, whatever it is, I want you to go online and I want you to look up J.R. Martinez. And I want you to look at his site and I want you to read his story. And I want you to read his book, which is a New York Times bestselling book, Full of Heart, My Story of Survival, Strength, and Spirit. 
because this is a man whose story should inspire us all. This is the best that our country has. And I'm honored to have talked to you today, buddy. I want to have a sandwich together one day and get to know each other a little more. Airs, I'm going to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to take that portion of what you just said and I'm just going to loop it in my house so my wife hears that all day long. <laughs> JR, this has been an honor, my friend. Thank you again for the opportunity. Continue to do the great work and continue to push people to get up off their asses and actually get out there and, and, and be fearless and and and, and create the, the, the spaces that they want for themselves. Take care, all right, buddy. Take care. Have a great day. And I'll be right back with my favorite part of the show, audience calls. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Shut it down. All right, John. New week and new callers. Let's get Shut it. Shut it down. We have Michael here from Chicago, Illinois, and he wants to pick up a second income. Hey, Michael. How are you doing, buddy? Great. Love the show. Love the podcast. Thanks, man. You're in Chicago. You're freezing your butt off up there? Yeah. It's getting a little bit better this weekend, but it's been a cold one. Yeah, you guys had a rough winter up there for sure. What would you want to talk about today, man? So uh, I work in a corporate role. You just got a promotion to uh, a manager, humble brag. You know, uh, shout out Big Cat there. Um, but I like what you do and I'd like to get something, you know, entrepreneurial under my belt and, you know, maybe get a, a second income kind of by, uh, maybe by age 30 or so. I'm uh, 25 right now thinking about putting together some type of business plan. And I was wondering what ideas you have to, uh, you know, start small, but start developing that second income. You know, the, the, that's a great question. Boy, what a great time to do so. I just uh, saw again, unemployment is at a 50 year low. Uh, so people are working. Income is up. Uh, uh, last year, about 640,000 small businesses were created. Last quarter, Steve, 200. I'm sorry, Michael. Last quarter, Mike, 200, uh, 790,000 were created. So new business starts are up 79%, man, which is unbelievable. So this is a great time to ask that question. You know, there's a new type of business today. Years ago when we started businesses, Mike, we had to buy inventory. We had to have stores. We had to have offices. We had to put all this money into bricks and mortar and all this money into inventory and staff and training and all of that. And then you look at guys like Mike Lindell with MyPillow, who doesn't have a store, did it all online with advertising. You look at people like the sock companies, Bowen and Box Sheets. There are so many companies that I call new market companies, Mike. They, they're great ideas, but they're web-based so you don't have to hu- spend huge dollars on inventory and labor and all the things that prohibit people from entering small business. So today I would think about what kind of business can you provide that you can get to people on their phones, get to people on their tablets, on their computers, but an e-commerce-based business, not a bricks-and-mortar-based business. So what are the yeah, things? Absolutely. So what are the things that you love? I mean, you into sporting goods? Are you into technology? You got to find something that you love, buddy. That you love talking about. You love promoting. You love selling. You love buying. You love being involved in. That's when entrepreneurship really works. So if I were to yeah, say absolutely. to you, I want you to go open a website tomorrow for what you love. What would it be, Mike? Oof, gosh. First thing that comes to mind is probably sports. Okay, so so what about sports? Do you love? Do you love the the? Are you a sports fan? You love the game? Yeah, being being a fan, huge Cubs fan, go to as many games as possible. Well, you know it's interesting. Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports is a dear friend of mine, and Dave was on the show, and he was talking about when he started, 
And, you know, Barstool <laughs> Sports is about a $100 million media company today. It started with Dave doing a, a printed, a speedy print sports newspaper called Barstool Sports, which he printed at 4 in the morning and went to the subway stations in Boston to start his business. And he turned it into a huge media business. So think about all the things you could do for sports. Could you provide a place where all sports news is aggregated about a certain team so that I could go to one location that was all Cubs? Could I go to one location? What could you do for Chicago fans? Think about what you could do around sports that creates and is a result of your passion. And that's really... The, the tough that's, challenge. That's really good. I, I have another friend named Joe Johnson who's a big Cub fan who lives in Chicago. And Joe created a T-shirt company. And you think, oh, big deal with the T-shirts. But he created something real unique. It's a T-shirt company that has these inspirational insults, if you will. And he came up with a concept for T-shirts. Son of a gun, his company's worth a few million dollars in just a couple of years. And it started with images on a website. So my, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. It could expand, you know, whether it's sports or tech or something like that, really hone in on what you're good at and what you're passionate about. Because I think a lot of people try to start a business because they think that it's just about the money, which that's a side of it, but you got to be passionate about what you do. Yeah, when you're really good at something, buddy, and you're passionate about it, the money comes every freaking time. You know, if you put the money first, uh, uh, then you wind up, I think, in a, in a life of misery. Anyway, good luck, Bobby. Uh, buddy, I hope the Cubs have a good season this year and make you happy. Absolutely. Can I get a shut it down? Of course. Shut it down, man. Shut it the hell down. All right, John, moving on. We have Brady from Medford, Mass., and he wants to know what the market looks like for a Satan-themed bar and also has a couple questions about the Golden Knights. Brady, how you doing, man? Good, John. How you doing? Good. You're in Medford. I think we did a bar rescue in Medford, if I'm not mistaken, years ago. What do you want to talk about today, Brady? Um, so I had a question. Uh, so I used to... I was in the army and I was stationed out in a uh, Olympia, Washington, and they had a bar out there. It was a uh, a Satan themed bar. <laughs> uh, Olympia, Washington is a, is a pretty pretty out there place. Yeah, uh, pretty weird crowd. I just wondering what your thoughts on a, a bar like that. Like, is it is it viable? Like, I don't even know if it's still in business, but it, it seemed kind of batshit crazy to me. Uh, what are your thoughts, John? Well, you know, in a big market like like you know a huge city like Boston, for example, you can get away with a lot of stuff, man, because you know you you only need one millionth of one percent of the population to come to it. But you know, a satanic bar is, is something that you go to once, and I'm guessing been there, done that before. So I'm not sure that that's something mm-hmm. that would work uh, uh, on a national basis. You know, I, I don't see a lot of women there. Uh, uh, honestly, I don't see a lot of women there who are, dare I say, going to shave their legs. I don't see a lot of women there that you're going to want to be with, possibly. So, you know, bars have to be very female-oriented to be successful. Also, I'll tell you a funny story, though. I used to own a bar uh, years ago named the Monkey Bar, and it was an S&M bar. And I'm not into that shit. Oh. I'm not into that shit. But what we did is we had a dominatrix behind the bar. And every time you, you took a shot, she spun you around and she'd whip your butt once with her little whip. And, and I thought it was a crazy idea when we started, but it was the most popular bar we had in the venue. People lined up all the time to get their shot and get their little whack in the butt. So, you know, Satan's not that far from getting a, a whipped in the butt. So who knows? I wouldn't put my money in it, though. I'll tell you that, Brady. I hear you, John. I hear you. I'll tell... Uh... 
Anton LaVey and the, the Church of Satan that I'm out on that deal. <laughs> so I see you're going to harass me about the Golden Knights. I see I'm looking at your email, and I see that your next question, <laughs> I'm just going to bust your balls for a second here, Brady. So your next question is, do you see the Golden Knights sustaining their early success in year two? Easy for you to say when the Bruins are doing pretty well this year, right? You notice, you know where the Knights are. So the answer to your question is no, and I'll give it to you, buddy. The Bruins are having a good season. We're sort of struggling right now. Uh, at Golden Knights, and it's a shame because I really thought we were going to have that season this year. Are you a big Bruins fan? I am. Uh, Bruins, Pats, Celts, everything, John. Uh, you're all the way. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, what, what goes around comes around. It's a, you know, what a run for an expansion team, right? Yeah, I hear you. Well, you know, the vice president of my company used to be from Boston, and, and we used to text each other all night long over Yankees, Red Sox stuff. And last year, you guys completely demoralized me. So, so I'm 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 very <laughs> humble towards Boston people at the moment. But uh, anyway, good to talk yeah. to you, Brady. Take care, man. Hope you guys have a great season. You too, John. Take, Take care, care, buddy. Shut it down, bro. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at johntaffer.com, podcast at johntaffer.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you. And then you and I will talk on a podcast and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the Podcast One app and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Uh, it's time to wrap this baby up. Good calls this week, huh, Corey? Yeah. I love when you guys call. You know, It's inspirational to me to talk to you. And to know that I can inspire you is, of course, the greatest thing in the world for me. But talk about inspiration. How about J.R. Martinez? What a guy, man. You know, it goes to show, no matter what obstacles are thrown at us, every one of us can win. Every one of us can achieve what we want. And J.R. is the example of that. Talk to you all next week for Episode 40. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 